Scooter Braun is a media proprietor, record executive, investor and manager. Best known perhaps as the mastermind behind the careers of Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande and many others. He started his career selling fake IDs at Emory University before becoming one of the most successful club promoters in Atlanta. After dropping out of college, Scooter jumped headfirst into the music industry where he discovered an angelic young street busker by the name of Justin Bieber while scrolling through YouTube one evening. The rest, as they say, is history. But that leaves out all of the wild highs and lows of the years that followed. The way that the music industry bigwigs of the day described the pair as that internet kid and his crazy manager. The trials and tribulations of fame and success. And the succession of canny deals that turned Scooter Braun into one of the most formidable forces in his field today. In a brilliant episode, Scooter talks to us about how he slept with a gun by his bedside for years why he loves founders with a burn-the-ships mentality, and how he's finally reclaiming his real name, Scott, once and for all. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about the Gentleman's Journal Shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. That's shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. Head over there for special, unique releases from a fine curation of brands, and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. Scooter, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad you got the white t-shirt memo and that we're both wearing the same outfit today. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, it's it's all. I, my hair wasn't looking as good as yours, so I threw a hat on. Okay, I was toying whether to wear a hat or not too. So I'm, uh, you know, well, your hair maybe, looks fantastic. I think you toured in the right direction. Well, that's very very kind of you to say. So you, California badge on your hat. You're repping California. I um, I'm repping. I'm repping right now. It's also just a good solid hat. It's a very very solid hat. We're experiencing California esque weather. I was just saying, in uh, London right now, and we don't know how to handle it. It's pathetic. <laughs> so if I pass out with heat stroke midway through the podcast, that'll be why. Just know that you passed out and your hair looks great. <laughs> okay. If I die like that, there are worse ways to go. So anyway, Scooter, let's let's start at the right at the beginning. Can we start with your name? Because I'm fascinated by names and how they change the way we see people and see different stuff. My name, Joe Bullmore, is as boring as it gets in some ways, but Scooter and especially Scooter Braun is special. How did Scooter come from Scott, which is your real name, of course? Uh, you know, look, I think I've answered this question many times in the past, a very different way than I'd answer it today. Um, I did a podcast with Jay Shetty recently and talked about my name at length. My name is Scott Braun. Um, you're welcome to call me that as well. You know, I had a good childhood. I had great experiences. But there were things about my childhood that I felt I didn't realize until doing the work now as an adult that I felt overpowered, almost as if subconsciously I didn't feel like Scott was strong enough because of certain things that happened. Right. Um, so when I was 19, I took on the name Scooter, which was a nickname in high school that a few friends called me. But I moved from my hometown to Atlanta, Georgia, and I took on this name. And I always said that I never liked the name Scott. I never felt connected to Scott. I felt like I named the wrong name. And I became Scooter. And Scooter was strong enough to take on the world and do the things that he wanted to do and um, had big dreams that he could accomplish. And I built this big, amazing, giant life around Scooter Braun. 
and it wasn't until this past year of COVID that I was dealing with some, some darkness and I decided to step into some real self-work that I went back and realized the truth of why I never liked my name. This idea that I was overpowered, the idea that I didn't trust Scott. And mm. this past year, I went back, did the work, got little Scott, realized he was strong enough, realized he was good enough, realized that he was always good enough. And I reclaimed that name. And I love the name Scott now. And I'm happy you call me Scott or Scooter because I realize I'm responsible for both of them. But one isn't in charge anymore. And uh, Scott is now back in the lead. And Scooter is a part of me. So is it is it a kind of Clark Kent Superman scenario? Uh, maybe a little bit. Not really. More like probably I didn't love myself enough. Yeah. You know, and um, as I went through life and I did the work, I realized that I love Scott. I love me. I love the little kid. I love like, you know, he was good enough. And, uh, and now what I realized scooter was great. It was, it serves its purpose. It's a great marketing name. It's easy to remember. Um, it brought a lot of attention to things that I was trying to do. And I'm always going to be grateful for that part of me, but it's a part of me. It isn't who I am. Um, and I realize now Scott is who I am. So when you look back to little Scott now, what what do you see when you see that kid? What were you like growing up? You were you were fairly rebellious, if I'm right. I think I became rebellious later on. Yeah. Um, I think I was full of life, full of personality, always very outgoing, very trusting, and still I want to believe the best in people. Always want to see the best case scenario. Always want to believe things can turn around. Always believe that like we can get there, you know. And my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. My dad was a refugee. My mom's dad died when she was eleven. My parents and grandparents, they had tough lives and they did the best they could and they did an amazing job. But you also inherit their trauma, you know, and what I think I've realized doing a lot of work is that, you know, that's almost the cost of growth. Like with with trauma, you get stronger, you know, with resistance, you get stronger, but you also take on a little bit of that fear of what happened. And a lot of our trauma is not even our own. It's inherited. And I think that there are a lot of things that you don't understand as a child. That's almost like the gift of life. You know, things happen to you as a kid, you don't really understand, and then it shapes you. Um, and then you get to unlearn bad habits as you do the work and you're older. Yeah. And that's kind of where I'm at. So I think when I look at that kid, I think he was an amazing kid. I think we all start off amazing and um, a very special kid. And he had amazing things happen to him in his life and some not so amazing things happen. And I'm appreciative of every single moment and understanding of every single moment and leaning into that resistance now and loving that kid. Can you think of any really singularly formative moments, things that either were kind of very bad experiences or very good, positive experiences that kind of looking back now have formed you as an adult? Look, I think I don't want to say certain ones because I don't want people like getting the wrong idea and certain right. people that I love, like, you know, like people, we all do the best we can with what we have. Um, but I give you one example. When I was younger, I was very outgoing and my mom told me to not talk during my brother's birthday. And at one point told me to leave. Like, I don't want you to be there in the beginning. And it was because she felt like my light was going to be too big and take away from him. And what I realize now is all of us have a light that should burn as bright as we possibly can. And it doesn't take away from anybody. And that kind of experience as a child told me, you're, you know, you shouldn't be so loud, dim your light, you know, don't, don't be outgoing. Like, and it wasn't what my mom was trying to accomplish, but that little moment for a child shifts a lot in you where you're almost embarrassed to be outgoing. You're almost embarrassed 
to bring joy to a room. When I did something, I assumed everyone hated me, right. you know, and the truth was I, like you, am lovable, you know, and um, my mom wasn't trying to do that, but it's that, you know, zero to eight, zero to 10, those years are so formative and the littlest thing, you might not have that intent and that's okay. That's, we could be the best parents in the world. Our kids are still going to be a little fucked up. That's the gift of life. They got to work through it. But like that little tiny thing gave me a crack in the confidence, you know, and there's good things that came with that and bad things that came with that, but it allowed me to do work later on and realize things. Were you a very confident young man? When I look back on your early career, some of the rooms you were in, some of the places you were at 18, 19, 20, most people would have, I don't know, either had huge imposter syndrome or just crumbled under the pressure. What do you remember from that time? Was it the kind of naivety of youth or were you scared? I think it was a naivety of youth. I was more scared of failure than the room. Right. Um, And my dad always used to say to me, every man takes a shit on the toilet just like you, so don't be intimidated (laughs) by a man. If you start to be intimidated, imagine him taking a shit on the toilet. (laughs) Have you actually used that trick? Oh, yeah, 100% it works. Uh, And it'll make you giggle. Um, but, uh, I, I don't think I was like ever intimidated by anyone because of that. I was like, why not me? Like, why should this CEO be so important? My grandfather was a hero to me and he did odd jobs in New York city. Yeah. You know, like I always treat everyone as if they're someone's hero, you know? So I don't think I was afraid. What I realize now is like, we all have a shame lie deep down inside of us from our formative years. Mine was that I'm not good enough. So it wasn't imposter syndrome. It was, I was doing this and I was doing this, but deep down, I was almost trying to achieve so many things. So I could finally say to myself, look, everything you've achieved, you're good enough now. Yeah. And I never believed I was good enough before I walked in the room. So I was so adamant about succeeding because I thought that's what gave me value. Can we talk about some of those early successes when you were at Emory University, one of your first big hustles i suppose was uh selling i don't know how to put it identification fake ids fake ids right i sold fake ids my buddy made them and he had a bad marketing plan and i was like we can do this a lot better and i was the marketing mind behind it and he was the guy and i said if we break certain guidelines i'm out and he broke a guideline and i bailed yeah and then i went into party promoting every single entrepreneur i know now when i knew them at university when we were 18 they were party promoters that seems to be like (laughs) the hustle and I don't know why it is. It, it, it's because it's kind of, I suppose, a combination of lots of different skills. But what were you good at? What was your skill set that made you be able to put on decent parties? I was always nice and respectful to women. Yeah. Um, so w- women felt safe at my parties. They knew I didn't do drugs and I wasn't trying to take advantage of anybody. And I built relationships with the club owners. I understood how to hustle and I understood how to corner the market by bringing in and sharing the wealth around with the right people mm. and just destroying competition. Um, <laughs> but my, but the, the biggest thing is I always wanted to give people, you know, a bang for their buck. So Atlanta was such a hotbed for hip hop music and the hip hop artists needed to break, you know, their, their songs. And we had a crossover crowd. So I offered them an opportunity to cross over yeah. and they offered me an opportunity to bring the biggest stars in the world into a party and surprise you. And that made the parties extremely unique. Are you a party person in general? Do you like the the atmosphere and buzz, or were you just kind of behind? No, the I saw it as a job. Yeah, I saw it as a job. I was never the guy at the table like popping bottles. That I did that to meet people. 
But even then I wasn't getting drunk, you know, but at my own parties, I barely drank at all. If at, if at all, yeah. um, I treated it as a job. I was nice and respectful, but I was working. Um, to me, I like having a good time, but it needs to be in the comfort of people I trust. Yeah. I'm not interested in raging in front of, you know, a bunch of random people because I find the company is what gives me joy. Yeah. And I suppose at that time and still probably now it's a cash business and it's probably pretty cutthroat and difficult. Were you ever screwed over or, or, or were there any really difficult times? I used to wear a gun on my ankle and a gun by my bedside. I was a cash party promoter in the murder capital of the United States. Um, wow. I knew every gangster, you know, I basically let everyone in my party. So no one knew who should be pay- getting paid protection. Right. Um, there was one time where things escalated with someone and it was pretty wild, but it got handled. But what stopped me from being a party promoter is I went out to not one of my parties. I went to this club chaos and it was, uh, I was there with this guy, Wolf, who I knew and was friendly with. And he wanted me to do spring breaks with him because he did puff spring breaks. He was like puffs, you know, bodyguard from back in the yeah. day. And, um, someone came in the club who I knew who was a well-known, well-known gangster. And um, he and Wolf used to be friends, but Wolf had broken up with his girl and that guy walked in with his girl and things escalated. And I was like, I'm getting out of here. And the next day I found out that Wolf had tried to shoot that guy out in the parking lot and Wolf was shot like 14 times and was dead. Oh my God. And when I heard that, I thought to myself, why was I there? What element am I putting myself in? What am I doing? I need to do something else. And I knew... From, when I danced at parties back in the day for money, high school, I knew the DJ made the most money, so I became a DJ. When I knew the, the promoter made more money than the, the DJ, I became a promoter. And I realized these record executives, they were walking in, and I read this book about David Geffen called The Operator, and he said, movies take years, TV shows take years, a song can change your life in a night. And I was always really good at my parties. The DJs would play what I tell them. I would say, like, they would spin, but if I walked up and say, play this song right now, they would. That was my rule, because I always knew what could get the, move, the room moving. Yeah. And I went into music because David's book and Jermaine Dupri had saw me at a party and he was like, you have more potential than, than this. You should come work with me. And mm-hmm. I had done stuff with Ludacris and yeah. like Chaka. And I basically jumped into the music industry head first. Are you musical yourself? You must have a particular ear at least. I was a DJ. This, yeah. this is my instrument. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't play and you don't sing. I played a little piano and trumpet when I was younger, but I was never you know, that wasn't inclined. Yeah. Um, what I was always good at was I could dance and I love songs. Yeah. But can I also tell you something, something I've learned over the years being in the music industry, having an extraordinary ear, a musician's ear doesn't always serve you as an executive. Because right. if you have a musician's ear, many times you hear things in such an extraordinary way, but the general consumer is hearing it with a layman's ear. Yeah. There's nothing extraordinary about all the hits that I've been a part of. I hear music the same way millions of other people do. So I believe if if I think it's a hit, probably millions of other people will because I'm so ordinary. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And that has served me. Being ordinary to understand what other people would like has actually served me. So you were still at college at this point when you were working with Jermaine at So So Deaf. Is that right? I got the job when I was 19, 20. Yeah. And I dropped out when I was 20. Um, and I went full, full tilt. Dropping out of college 
you know, that's that's kind of now a cliche of incredibly successful people, but it by no means guarantees anything. Was it very daunting to do that? Were, were you on the fence at all? Um, yes and no. Because of the promotion and the party promoting, I had already not been going to class so much. And I was trying to work it out. And I got put from, you know, having a really great grade point average my first semester. I got my second semester when the parties were taking off. My grade point average went to shit because Emory at the time didn't offer internet classes. Mm. So I was like missing class all the time. And I got put on academic probation. I took the job with Jermaine. I got brought into this counselor who, you know, was doing his job. They're, they're waiting to find out, okay, you went from having great grades to shit grades. Is there a problem with the family? Are you on drugs? Like, you know, and I went and I said, no, I'm an entrepreneur. I just, I can't get there. Like, I wish there's another way. And he goes, well, let me tell you the story of Robert Woodruff. And Robert Woodruff founded Coca-Cola, the largest endowment to Emory University. And he tells me the story and I'm thinking, oh my God, this guy gets me. He sees I'm an entrepreneur. He's going to help me stay in school. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, and the chances of you being Robert Woodruff are one in a billion. <laughs> He's like, those chances are better if you just stay in school, you hold off on this, you focus, you get a degree, and your odds go way up. And I looked at him, and I was so disappointed that he didn't believe me of what I was capable of that I remember distinctly looking at him. And he said, I said, well, I think I know what we need to do. And he goes, so you're going to stay in school and get this right? And I said, actually, no, I'm dropping out. Wow. Just like that. And I walked out of that room and I dropped out that day. No regrets? You know, I promised, I didn't tell my mom for a whole semester. I actually paid with my party money that I was making. I paid for a semester of school so they would keep sending her the mail. <laughs> That's an expensive um, service. <laughs> yeah, I think I, at that time it was like 15 grand for the semester and I literally wow. paid it. And because um, I was doing well with the parties. And I remember my mom always talking to me and my dad like, they were like, you're never in class. When you're talking to us, you're traveling here and there. Like, are you still in college? Tell us the truth. And a lot of tears and embarrassment. And my mom's, you know, first person in her family with her sister, and her brother, like, you know, and my dad and his sister, first people who go to college. And like, you know, they're, they're dentists. Like they wanted their academics and they wanted that for me. And um, I was sad in that moment. And I told my mom, mom, I haven't asked you guys for money in a long time. Like I'm doing my thing. If I, if this doesn't work out, I'll go back. Yeah. And uh, years later, I remember being at a show. My mom was standing next to me and the whole crowd's chanting something, probably chanting Justin. And my mom looked at me and she goes, you don't need to go back. This is my graduation. And <laughs> I haven't had any regrets. You know, everyone has their own path. Yeah. Um, and this was the right path for me. Can we talk about So So Deaf? You left there. When I was 24. When you were 24. Yeah. And what did you remember? Four, four years. What do you remember from the first day after you left when you were kind of I guess now looking at setting up your own thing, was that an incredibly daunting proposition? No, I was excited. I was kind of put in a position where I had no choice. Jermaine and I are still close to this day. We're still very close friends. I have all the love in the world for him. He helped change my life, but I had a lot of ideas. And at the time, Jermaine didn't want to do those ideas. And someone I loved and respected said, you know, you're young, you don't have kids. Now's the time for you to go chase your dream. And I left and I was excited to prove that these ideas could work, that an artist built on YouTube could become a star. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of things I would say now to you that are like, well, that's the norm. But at the time when I wanted to do them, no one had ever used social media to make a star. No. So, you know, we were the first to do it. People thought I was crazy. <laughs> and as a tangent, you went traveling at that point. Is that right? In between, um, I was confused. My brother was backpacking South America 
like $15 a night hostels, 10 hour bus rides. Like, but he kept writing this blog and it was so incredible. I was reading it like he's living such a full life. I always thought backpacking was for rich kids who were lost. And like, these kids are all broke, just making their way around South America and like living an adventure every day. Mm. And, um, it was the day after Wolf died. Wolf got shot. And I said, what am I doing? And I hit my brother and I bought a one-way ticket to Chile. And I joined him for the next month traveling around South America. Was that a quite an important thing for you just to get away from it all? Yeah, because I'd never done that before. And what happened was um, when I went down there, I had no trust in humanity. I was so hardened up by the life that I was living that I was waiting for everyone to fuck me. You know, like it was, you know, you got a gun on you at all times. Like, yeah. And when I went down there, I remember distinctly we were in a hostel and I'm like, well, where are we supposed to put our stuff? And he's like, right there. I'm like, well, what if someone steals it? And he's like, you got to trust people in this environment. Yeah. And when I was finished with that trip and the experiences that I had, I came back renewed that I choose to trust people first. Yeah. It's a better way to live. People are going to disappoint you. They're going to disappoint you. Sometimes you're going to have to carry the burden of their disappointment. They're going to, you know, tell a story about you to say it was your fault, you know, but the truth is I choose to trust people. I choose to see the best in people. And if they hurt me, I'll deal with it then, but I'm not going to walk through life assuming everyone's going to fuck me. So let's almost talk about- saying that again. Now it was actually, I'm glad we did this interview because saying that again now is reminding me of that moment. And I think I needed to hear myself say that again. Yeah. Have you toughened up recently? Do you think? Um, I think I've just done so much work in this past year at times, toughened up at times, been hurt at times, disappointed at times, had joy, but sometimes it's just nice to remind yourself of a lesson you learned in the past because it's, it's relevant to me today. So let's talk about those those big breakthroughs, the social media stars that no one else saw coming. Your one of your first big signings was Asher Roth. Yep, um, I love college. I love college. I just listened to that song just before this to get me psyched up. It's special to me because that came out in my first year of college, and you can imagine how much we wanted to be the kind of frat boys in his <laughs> videos. And it's still, I mean, the, the say it ain't so sample in it. It's kind of a, a beautiful song in a way. I, I really think it's it's one for the ages. I agree. What did you see in Asher that that you loved? Um, I saw an opening. I saw, I mean, it's very normal for us to have all kinds of white rappers today living all kinds of different styles and lifestyles. Uh, At the time, there was only Eminem, and he was the only one who had the credibility to do it. But I thought there's a tremendous amount of white kids who look like Asher, who act like Asher, who love hip-hop. Yeah. And there's no one speaking to him, and he's a good enough lyricist to do this. He's a great lyricist. And that Asleep in the Bread Isle album is one of my favorite albums I've ever been a part of. I think it's an absolute classic. If people haven't heard it, listen to this podcast, they should go get that album. Um, and we we had a monster. We had a couple of hits on that album, and Isle of College was a monster. Um, and I think he filled a void that wasn't there and opened the door for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, how uh, that's how I met Mac Miller all those years ago. He and his manager hit me up from a blog being like, yo, we're fans of what you guys are doing with Asher. Like, wow. And I've just seen so many other people come along that I think he opened the door for. Obviously, the the big hit was um, Justin Bieber. And the, the story of that is pretty well known. But what I found interesting during this research was that it wasn't a kind of an instant smash hit. It looks back in, looking back now, you think Justin Bieber, the biggest artist of the last 15 years, how could he miss? But it was a very difficult period for you. You almost went broke at one point when you were working yeah. with him and Asher. Can no one some- wanted him. No. <laughs> <laughs> no one believed, no one wanted him. Everyone thought he was a YouTube kid. No one comes off of YouTube. And I'm yeah. like, no, YouTube's the future. 
and no one wanted to listen. And they said he was too young. And, um, and we just started building it on, on YouTube ourselves. And we went from 60,000 views when I met him to 66 million when we signed a record deal. Mm. And even the record deal, I had to go to Usher to get help to get the deal that we wanted because I love LA and I'll say this in front of him. LA Reed didn't want to sign Justin originally. He wanted to get a deal from Usher and he did it for Usher as a favor. And that's why I gave Usher a piece at the time because I was like, I need help. And um, even after we signed, they didn't open a budget for me. Even the publicist at the time at the label said, I don't want the internet kid and his crazy manager. And um, Tricky Stewart and The Dream were friends of mine in Atlanta and they believed in us. And they did those first My World album. They did those records on spec. Yeah. You know, as a favor to me, free studio, free everything. And I walked in LA's office and he couldn't believe that I had these records done with no budget. And Tricky was one of the biggest producers in the world and Dream. And like, he was like, how did this happen? And I said, look, all I need is a video budget. Let me just put out an EP. Let me start with that. And when I said, this is a monster, you guys aren't paying attention. And when we put out the first single um, one time, it, just flew like a rocket and ever since then uh justin has has been on the the ride that is justin bieber and i'm so proud of who he is as a man today at 27 i mean to be the most googled person in the world through your adolescence and to come out on the other side poised and confident and kind Mm. and happily married like i'm just really really proud of him it's incredible and it's it's been so fascinating to kind of watch that journey which you have been such a big part of behind the scenes i know but can we talk about the the difficult bits at the start because when no one wanted him when he was just the internet kid you you house him school mom, paper yeah, hockey paper practice school. his house yeah i was taking all the money all the money i made with parties and so so deaf and i was pouring it all into justin and asher did you ever think i've made a mistake here i'm in too deep and no this might not work no no from the first video i saw on him when he sang neo so sick i had a complete vision of him being the biggest artist in the world. And I saw it till he was 18. Like I saw it so clearly and I had complete conviction in him. I never doubted him once. And even after 18, when the world doubted him and he went through a tough period, I never doubted him. I had his back and I said, we just got to get through this period. Like his talent isn't going to die. We just got to get him through what he's going through. I've never had a doubt in Justin. He's resilient and special. Was there a moment when you felt vindicated when you knew suddenly, right, this is works. We're here. This is so shallow, but it's funny. <laughs> uh, there was a point where he was going through his, his stuff and the addiction and all the different stuff he was going through, which his family, it's in his family history that a lot of people have fought through that, right? It was in his blood. And um, there was a point he was going through it where another manager who I had always respected because I loved the band, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, their manager at that time had been their manager their whole career gave a quote to the daily mail out of nowhere. I don't even know the guy where he was like something to the effect of, you know, they asked him about what he thinks of Justin's antics. And he said, you know, if I was Scooter Braun, I'd take Justin behind the woodshed and give him an ass whooping. Um, But Scooter's too much of a chicken shit to do it. It doesn't matter. No one's going to know the name Justin Bieber in four years anyway. Wow. Or three years. He said three years. And I waited. I literally took a picture of it, put it in my thumb. And I waited five years later when Justin had broken the record with Despacito and had purpose. Like I waited a long time. I waited for a lot of success. And Justin had the longest number one in Billboard history and had broken all these records and waited five years. And I posted that quote on my Instagram. (laughs) And I said, move in silence, do the work, 
the rest will speak for itself. This quote is from five years ago. I guess we passed the three-year mark. <laughs> and that manager reached out to me and said, respect. Fair enough. Is that something that drives you a lot? I, I noticed this, Scooter, in, in a lot of your stories, when people have been rude to you or or people have told you you can't do something, that's usually when you've then gone on to be successful. Um, yeah, I think in the past, disrespect has fueled me. I don't think, you know, it's a pattern of mine. I don't think it will necessarily go away. Um, but I think there's something I read recently that I like. They said, you can have a competitive mind, which is about winning. Yeah. And you're never going to feel like you have enough. Because once you win, you're going to need more wins and more wins to fill up the cup and fill up the cup. And fill up. It's a never ending cycle, which I think I was in. And then they said, or you can choose to have a creative mind that the joy of building is bountiful and never ending. And I think that's where I've gotten to in a place in my life today, which is I trust the universe a lot more and I'm having joy in creating and someone's disrespect doesn't really fuel me as much because I'm only creating within myself at this point and the people I love. Mm. Um, but I feel like I got to this point because I had that creative mind for so long and I have something to look at where the disrespect was fueling me and it gave me a lot of success and it gave me a vantage point to be able to go to the next level. I've heard you speak before as well about the importance of, of having mentors. And this is something we kind of touch on with a lot of the people who come on this podcast. And I, I sometimes find it frustrating because, you know, I imagine as a young creative person that there it's very difficult to find a mentor. There is no straight path to do it. And yeah. yet people say, Oh, it was so important for me, my mentors. And I'm kind of thinking, well, is there like a shop you can go to? Is there a hotline? You can I, I'll be honest with you. I had a mentor in my father. Yeah. You can have a mentor from a guy driving an Uber or, yeah. you know, a lift and just giving you some good advice. You never know where mentoring comes from. Um, I don't think I had distinct business mentors till I was 30 and I was already successful. Mm. You know, um, and then a lot of people I admired from a distance started to become mentors to me. But you can you can find mentorship in script. You can find mentorship in reading. Some of the greatest mentors out there for me are people I've read books about them or read books they've written where they offered me great, great advice. You don't have to necessarily know the person for them to mentor. you. Yeah. And I was lucky enough that the person I read that book about when I was 19, when I was 30, I met him and he became my mentor. But he had almost mentored me for the 10 years prior because I knew so much about his career that I was able to relate things to what I had heard about him or read about him, studied about him. So when I met him, I was there just to say thank you. And then he became my friend and a great mentor. David Geffen. David Geffen. Yeah. Do you think there has to be a lack of transaction? Do you think in those relationships, you have to just go and openly and say, I admire you and that's enough? If you go with an agenda. I think so. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because... For years, I told David, we're not allowed to do any business together. I will not do business with you. I will not do business with you. Yeah. And he understood that. And I said, I just want your wisdom. And we we become really great friends. I think he's, I love David. And, you know, more recently, I have a fund with my partners, Andrew and Schuster TQ. It's very successful. And I'm very happy about the partnership. Um, and David is an investor in the fund. And it's so funny because it's the first thing we've ever done together. And I still didn't approach him. Andrew did. <laughs> so, um, so we actually never talk about the fun, you know? And uh, I think, I think sometimes we talk about business all the time, but when sometimes it's a beautiful thing to have a mentor who isn't necessarily tied to your business. Yeah. Cause I've had mentors also who are tied to my business. And sometimes that gets a little funky when, you know, you aren't aligned and you're going to them for mentorship and they can only give you so much because 
course. You know, you're not fully aligned. Um, and you just have mutual respect to understand that. Uh, but I think mentorship is important, but you might not find your idea till you're in your forties or your fifties. You might not find your mentor till you're in your thirties, forties, or fifties. Like you never know, mm-hmm. but listen to all the wisdom around you. Cause you never know when the universe is giving you a piece of some kind of gift from, from a stranger. Yeah. You've of course been a, a huge mentor, as we said to Justin Bieber and also to Ariana Grande and other young artists. Have you found that difficult at all? Have you had to kind of learn on the job? It's not something you can really be trained for. I want to show you something. I just because you're British. <laughs> can you can you see that? Oh yeah. The Manchester Bee. Yep. Right. So um, amazing. Yeah, I, I've tattooed I got it tattooed with Ariana and the mayor. You know, uh, a, a year after One Love, we were going to do it at One Love, um, mm. but we were working so hard and so quickly, we actually never got to have the tattoo. And I said, I can't do it till I come back to Manchester. And when we returned a year later, we all got the tattoo together. Um, as far as like mentoring them, like when you're mentoring something, the real great mentorships are when someone is offering you just as much back. And I can tell you, I've learned just as much as from Ariana and and Justin and Demi and Tori and J Balvin and like working with Kanye. Like I've just learned so much from the amazing people I've gotten to be a part of their lives and witness, you know, it's like I said, you get wisdom from all different places. I see colors differently from my three years working from Kanye. Like Mm -hmm. I see palettes differently, (laughs) you know, and um, with Ariana, she has such a finger on the pulse of culture that it's extraordinary the things that she sees and she's aware of and the things that I learned from her. Um, Justin helped me be a better man, you know, going through those struggles together, you know, it's been incredible. And Demi and I talk about self-work all the time, you know, Balvin and I talk about depression and, and self-work and, you know, it's when you're getting to be a part of someone's life so intimately, you see the best and the worst of them. Yeah. And, uh, there's a really great quote in um, that's Tao Te Ching, right? Have you read this? No. And uh, I think the quote goes, "What is a good man but a bad man's teacher? What is a bad man but a good but doing a good man's job?" And I think that's really important to pay attention to. Like, what is a good man but a bad man's teacher? It's all of oh. our responsibility if we're a good person to be there for someone that you think is a bad man. Because what is a bad man but someone who's just doing a job? Yeah. Just doing something that they were taught. It's not that they're bad. It's that they were taught to do something bad and it's your job to be there for them. And that's what I mean when you see the good, the bad, and the ugly, they see it in me. And we see each other's humanity and it's our job to be there for each other. When we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, I'm aware that the music industry, like many creative industries, has big chunks of each of those throughout it. What, what are the kind of the ugly parts that maybe people like me don't get to see? And then we'll be positive after that. And I want to say, what are the kind of unusually beautiful and poignant parts of it too? Um, look, I think the bad parts are that fame brings out the best and the worst in us. Yeah. And I think um, you, you have a lot more insecurities when your life is being played out in front of the entire world. There's a lot more judgment. There's a lot more things to think about people aren't always as transparent. Um, And then when someone's not transparent, we make judgment calls who those people are. And it's a vicious cycle. You know, no, 
you can never look at anyone offending you. Yes, someone can be more responsible, but we all play a role in something. Mm. You know, um, I've had experiences like there's that line in in Batman, uh, if you do it right long enough, even you will become the villain. And, you know, I had my experience recently where I was painted as a villain. I'm not shying away from that. <laughs> um, but that experience was, I had to look at that and say, well, what blame do I have in this? Because I've never bullied anybody. I don't even have much of an experience with this person saying this. And I was excited to work with them. Um, and I looked at it and I said, you know what? Here's my blame in this. I was arrogant enough to think that this person would be excited to work with me. And I don't know them. And I thought, well, yeah, they had some issues with some people that I've worked with, but they're going to give me the benefit of the doubt and come talk to me. And that was, I, I made a deal without everyone being all in. Mm-hmm. And I didn't necessarily deserve what happened next. And the vicious cycle happened. And I have decided that I still have no ill will. Um, I learned a lot from the experience. But what it did is when I sold recently to Hive, and we combined our company and we, you know, brought BTS and Justin, all around all these names under this company. I made sure everyone was all in. I made sure that my artists got stock. I made sure my executives got stock. I made sure they were compensated far beyond anything that they were entitled to because I wanted everyone to feel good, not one person to feel bad. And when that deal was done, learning from my past deals, Everyone felt so good about it. Everyone got so taken care of that I had nothing to worry about. And that was an important lesson for me to learn that I'm not interested in doing any deals where unless everybody's in. Yeah. And you could say, hey, it's business. And, oh, you know, like I didn't do anything wrong. Or you can decide, you know, I didn't do anything wrong, but what can I learn from this? Can we talk about the Hive deal for a second? Because it's, it is one sure. of the most significant deals in in recent music industry history, I suppose. Did it feel monumental at the time was it incredibly difficult to get done were you pulling your hair out at any points how did it work no i think when we bought big machine that was more difficult because scott wasn't sure if he wanted to sell and we were very patient and we said okay like let us know and you know and um that was a very big deal because it was the biggest independent record label in the world and when that happened it was very exciting and we were all excited to work together the hive deal um my friend had approached me he was talking to me about a deal. I was exploring it. That leaked prematurely. Mm. And I got a phone call that Chairman Bang wanted to talk. And I have absolutely have always respected what he built. Um, a lot of the way I built my company was looking at the Korean and Japanese companies and how they built their music companies from day one. Um, so he and I started doing Zooms. And he said he was interested in doing a deal to bring us together. And each Zoom, we never talked about business. We talked about meditation. We talked about life. We talked about family. We talked about philosophy. And in the fourth week, he said, you know, when I usually work with Western people, everything for them is about transaction. Mm. How do you do the transaction? It's never about relationship. It's never about how do we do this moving forward? How do we build together? He goes, in the last four weeks, you never once talked to me about transaction. He goes, that's how we do things in the East. We do things based on relationships. And he said, you know, even if my people find something in diligence I don't like, I'm still doing this deal because you and I will fix it together. And I said, well, they're not going to find anything. We, we don't lie. We run really good books. And they didn't find anything. But he closed the deal within two weeks. And I could not have had a, I can't have a better partner. I love the guy. Absolutely. I loved your very sweet Instagram post. Was that right? With you in, in the Time magazine cover? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. What, what, are, what are the kind of people that you like to work with? What are the traits of the people you like to hire or... 
or do business with? Um, I think honesty, loyalty, and just someone who you can trust and someone who's willing to be transparent. The worst thing in the world is someone who thinks they can fix it when they see it going wrong by themselves and they end up making it a bigger problem because they're so adamant they can fix it. Just be honest, come to the team, say, Hey, I'm spotting something. Let's all work on it together early and nip it in the butt. Yeah. And, um, I've tried to build a family environment with my company. I'm very close to the people. Allison just had her 40th birthday in Mexico and like 90% of the people there were staff and friends. You know, we've, we've built a very unique company where we actually love and care about each other. And I've heard people say, you should just separate business and pleasure, but I don't necessarily believe in that. Mm. I think there needs to be some separation, but for the most part, if it's 11 o'clock at night and there's an emergency, the person's going to do the job if they respect and care about you because they know you respect and care about them. Otherwise, they're going to say, fuck my boss. I'm not getting up for them. Yeah. I've heard you speak before about hiring people who are good at the things that you're not so good at. Absolutely. What What are the kind of weak spots you love to um, you like to hire for? I mean, now it's about scale. Early on, it was when I met Allison, I was like, oh, we she's really amazing at dotting the I's, crossing the T's making sure we don't miss an inch of anything. Like she's going to make sure we're thorough. She's a lawyer and she was like amazing. But now it's about hiring great people, trusting them to do their job because that's how you scale. You know, the head of our TV and film department, who's crushing James Shin, he was horrible for the first six months, horrible. And I was like, ready to, I was like, oh man, we're gonna have to let this guy go. And he comes in my office. He's like, I'm about to have my first kid. Thank you so much for this job. And I'm like, I can't let this guy go. (laughs) So I said, James, I was going to fire you today. And he was like, what? Wow. And I said, I'm not going to, but you need to start treating this company like it's your own. Stop trying to figure out what I like and go make the shows and sell the shows and the movies that you believe in. Yeah. Because I'm not going to be able to watch you every single day. And you got to have conviction in what you're doing. If you're guessing what I like, you're never going to get right. You're not me. And if I find something I like, I'll bring it to you. Since that day, he's one of the greatest hires I've ever had. Wow. And he has complete self-belief in a way he didn't have before. And he is a star. And we just re-upped with him. And I think he's fantastic. Do you, as a boss, kind of allow yourself to show vulnerabilities, kind of weaknesses? Are you open with the things you're not good at with your... Yeah. Um, Jules Faree, who uh, is head of our brand strategy and like, just got a big promotion. She's amazing. She's known me for a decade. And, you know, I open up to her about my hurts and my feelings. Like Allison and Jen, we, we talk like family. It's, it's like cousins, hmm. you know, like if, if they're going through something or I'm going through something, I get a text, Hey, are you okay? Or I text them, how are you doing? Like, like it's, we genuinely care about each other. And that's the atmosphere I wanted to build. And, and, you know, it's funny the other day, someone talked about how our company is, you know, leadership is like, women in our workforce and 70% leadership is women. And they were like, so good of you. I didn't plan that. I wasn't like, oh my God, I got to hire men. But like the reason the majority of our company is women is because they were the most capable to do the job. Yeah. And they're the best at the job. So that's why our company is structured that way. Yeah. And these people who worked with me for a decade, Jules, Jen, Allison, Scott, you know, James on this team now, like Tony's a big part of our team now, like so many different people I can speak about and I'm leaving so many names out, but like, this is family. Yeah. You know, these, these people, we care for each other and one day we're going to not work together. 
but we're still going to be friends. Another part of your success, Scooter, in a different place entirely is, is your kind of series of now looking back, incredibly astute uh, investments outside of your kind of core area of expertise. So what do you look for when you're investing in companies? I mean, you've, you've had parts of Uber, Lyft, Interest, the kind of Lyft's list of tech startup goes on. Is it, is it the people behind it or is it, is it a numbers game? Is it your, your No, it's, it's a combination. Sometimes yeah. it's the people behind it. You know, when I met Travis from Uber, he was a burn the ships kind of guy. Like he was married to Uber. And it's funny when I met his, com- his competition, John Zimmer, who I've known since high school. Yeah. Um, he played soccer with my brother. Wow. Um, he is the same kind of burn the ships kind of guy. What does that expression mean? Burn Sorry, the that. ships is, they used to say when they arrived on the, on the shores of their enemy, the generals would say, burn the ships, our own ships, because wow. the only way you're going home <laughs> is in the ships of our enemies. There is no retreat. We're going to figure this out or we're going to die here. <laughs> and that mentality, when you see it in a founder, you know they're going to pivot, they're going to shift. You know, um, Jason at Discord, same thing. Like, just burn the ships. I'm going to build a great company. Mm. um zach at row same thing when you meet founders like that you know there's something special and you bet on them whitney from bumble day one i knew yeah i was like whitney is going to figure this out you know uh trina from from figs trina spears like figure it out like there's a section here for the healthcare workers i'm going to create the nike for that space like just complete conviction yeah um so when you meet people like that you bet on them instantly sometimes you meet a company you go oh there's a a huge gap in the marketplace and they're doing something unique. Let's make this bet. And now a bunch of, I'd always put up my own money and done it. And then I met my partners, Andrew and Schuster, and we decided to put up our own money to do a small fund. And with the success of it, it's now grown to be something much larger. And that's where I make my investments in that space. And it's similar to my entertainment business where now I have two partners who do things that I don't do really, really well. I was always shoot from the hip, go with the gut. Schuster is analytical and has a gut and so does Andrew, but like they really know how to analyze something. Andrew knows how to say no, you know, it's like, it, it's, he knows how to chase something and see a trend. Like it's, I, I, I found brilliant, brilliant partners. And what's even more exciting is like the people investing with us are the people from my other business. Allison invests with us, Justin invests with us. You know, uh, I've told my new partners to invest with us. Like it's, I try to create a synergy across all the, all the different things. And I've been very fortunate to be a part of a lot of cool stories. Well, before, before we let you go, I know you've got to get on, but I, I wanted to ask you, cause you've just turned 40 last month. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Was that a, a big transition? Were there any kind of realizations as you crossed that threshold? Yeah, it, it was nothing like what I thought it would look like. What do you mean by that? Uh, I, I always thought 40 would be the biggest concert in the world. I would have all my artists do a concert for me. And a giant party, like my 30th was a crazy party concert. Like, yeah. And I thought 40, oh my God, it's going to be, the world is going to wish they were there. (laughs) And when 40 came after the year of work that I've done, everyone's calling me, what are we doing? What are we doing? And I said, all I want to do is be on the beach with my wife and my children. I want to be a family on my 40th birthday. That's all I want. Yeah. And um, that was how I spent my 40th birthday. I was on the beach with Yale and the kids, and that was how I wanted to turn 40. That's how I wanted to end those 10 years, and I was the happiest I could be. How are you going to do the 50th? 
big concert. That's what the interesting <laughs> thing about 40. It's nothing what I looked like. And I realized for the first time in my life, I don't have a plan. My life is not in my control as much as I thought. But I'm trusting the universe because it is, as I've said before, it's statistically impossible for me to be where I am. That means someone upstairs has been looking out for me. And I'm going to put more trust in him or her. Um, and I'm going to enjoy the next 10 years as much as I possibly can. And any pain or resistance that comes, I'm going to lean in and to learn why it was given to me. Cause I only think we're given what we can handle and what we need to learn from. And I can tell you, I'm a better man at 40 than I was at 30. And I'll be a better man at 50 than I am at 40. I don't doubt it. Do you, do you think we make our own luck in some ways, Kuta? I think we can push towards things. We have free choice. Um, and we can, we can manifest certain things. Um, but I think that I was a white man born in New York City in 1981. I won the lottery the day I came out. For anyone who says we're not lucky, they're ridiculous and they should be more grateful. And when you're grateful, you choose to use what's given to you to do great things. And that's what I think we were able to do. Absolutely. So what's next then? What can we look forward to? Can you give us a scoop here and tell us something no one knows? Um, the journey continues. Amazing. Scooter, thank you so, so much for talking to us. It's been fascinating. And I wish we could have chatted for longer, but there may be a part two one day. Maybe after your 50th birthday, we'll meet up. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. I appreciate you and have a great day. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.